Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to Acts chapter number 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible in the back part, turn to page 100, and you would be right at Acts chapter 10. You know, as human beings, from time to time, we can suffer motion sickness. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've suffered that, but we know that we can do that. I mean, some of us suffer motion sickness when we just have to get in the back seat of a car, the back seat of a van, and when we do that, we get a little queasy and a little nausea begins to creep upon us. Some of us experience uh, motion sickness maybe when we get on a roller coaster or some other ride in an amusement park where there's just sudden turns or, or sudden drops. I know I had a really severe case of motion sickness a number of years ago when I had the opportunity to ride in a, a 1941 Stearman two-seat biplane. I wasn't piloting it. I was just riding in. It was part of the Red Baron pizza promotion they were doing. And when we went up, this guy said to me, hey, would you like to do some aerobatics? And oh my gosh, barrel rolls and all these things. And I'm telling you, I definitely had some motion sickness from that adventure. We all can experience it on some level or another, but you know, there's, there seems to be some people who thrive on it. I don't know. You know, jet pilots, they just must thrive on some motion sickness because that's what you get when you're flying a jet around. But no matter where we are, we're all on some spectrum somewhere, right, when it comes to some motion sickness. And you know what's really interesting? The church can experience that. Individuals in the church can experience that. In fact, whenever there's really significant change that happens in a church, there's some, if you would, spiritual motion sickness that occurs among individuals in the church. And I think when big change happens, even people in the church are on a spectrum. You know, there's a percentage of people, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, maybe 5% in the church who relish change. You know, for them, the more sweeping it is, the more stimulating it is. The more unexpected it is, the more provocative it is to them. You know, the faster the change, the better for, for some people. But then there's another group of people on the spectrum, and I don't know what the percentage would be for sure. Maybe we would say 10%. But they're a little resistant to change. You know, change is unsettling to them. You know, the status quo, it's just so safe. It's just so appealing. And I remember when we had to change properties and move. That just unsettled some folks. Um, and when change comes for some of us, there's just sort of that immediate, you know, queasiness and uneasiness that comes. But probably for, for the bulk of people in a local church, the bulk of the body, I don't know, 80 plus percent of them, um, we're open to change. We're open to change. And yet, we need some time to reflect and process the change when it comes to us. You know, we want to clarify the why is the change coming. We want to clarify what the change might mean. And when there's a radical turn or a radical shift, even for the majority, it can be unsettling and a little bit startling if that change comes without warning. So we're all on this spectrum. But here's the interesting thing. Change is part of life, isn't it? 
You just live long enough and you're going to know that's true. And God is a God of change. In Acts chapter 10 and in chapter 11, God is going to bring some radical change to the church. It's really just a hard left turn in which people basically bang their head on the spiritual windows. It's so radical. And spiritual motion sickness affects the whole spectrum of those in the church. Even the seasoned veterans. Remember, at this time, the church had been in existence for about a decade. And even those who'd been in the church for a decade found this change making them queasy and uneasy. And what was the change? God called the Gentiles into the church. That was radical men and women. That was a radical change. But in the midst of that radical change, a marvelous thing happened. The gospel came to us. The gospel came to us. What we're going to do as we look at these chapters today is we're going to be tracing back our roots and what created a tidal wave of, if I could say it this way, spiritual motion sickness in the church at Jerusalem was really the beginning of the blessing for us, for you and for me. We've been involved in a number of weeks with our study we've entitled Seeds. Uh, it's on the book of Acts. Uh, Acts can be broken up into those three sections of plant, scatter, grow. We're in the middle section on scatter. And the message title I have given today is The Gospel Comes to Us. And I hope I can just take you back in time to realize how significant these events were. Now, I would like to read from chapter 10, beginning with verse 34, and I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter and invite you to follow along as I'm reading. Let's climb into what's happening here. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John had proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach the gospel to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins." And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them 
speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few more days. Now let me just give to you an outline of this entire section of chapters 10 and 11. First of all, we have Peter's preparation in the first 33 verses of chapter 10. We covered that last time. Remember, you had Cornelius's vision, and you had Peter's vision, and then you had Peter traveling to where Cornelius was, and Cornelius had gathered all these relatives and friends and associates there. And then we have Peter's proclamation in chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. Then we have God's providential work that emerges in verses 44 to 48. And then in chapter 11, verses 1 to 26, there are some ramifications that come from this in Jerusalem and beyond. And the beyond includes Norman, Oklahoma. The beyond includes you, and it includes me. So let's look at Peter's proclamation. All these people are gathered together. Peter appears with them, and he is going to preach a message to them. So verse 34, he opens his mouth, and he says, I understand how now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, they all have an ability and an opportunity to believe in him. I mean, we all have the same creator, right? Acts 17, 26. We all have the same issue, that we face, sin, Romans 3, 23, and we all need a rescuer, and the only rescuer, Acts 4, 12, is Jesus. And so he gives this message to them. And I find it interesting as someone who delivers messages that he actually gives a four-point message. And I wanna just lay out the four points that he covers in his gospel message. His gospel message includes reference first to Christ's life. We see that in verse 38. We see a reference to Christ's death in verse 39. We see a reference to Christ's resurrection in verses 40 to 41. And then a reference to Christ's second coming in verse 42. He has been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So as he preaches this message, he communicates the message of salvation, the gospel to these people, he talks about how Jesus lived, how Jesus died, how Jesus rose again, and how Jesus is coming again. Now, if you're thinking about what is a good outline for me to follow as I'm communicating the gospel message to an individual, here is a great outline for us. We want to talk about how Christ lived. We want to talk about how Christ died. We want to talk about how Christ rose again. And we talk, want to talk about how he is coming again. And he is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. So that's his message. We're blasting our way through there. That's the communication that he gives to these who are Gentiles gathered. And notice in verse 43, look down there, it says, of him Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. How many, how many people here have taken a foreign language or studied a foreign language? Let me see your hands. All right, a number of you have. If you have, you know that phrase structure or sentence structure is not always the same in every language. 
that sometimes a phrase that might occur in the first part of an English sentence might be the last part of another sentence. And that is exactly what happens here in verse 43. The actual last phrase that comes out of Peter's mouth is the one, who believes in him. Basically, it goes something like this. Of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, the forgiveness of sins comes to everyone who believes in him. That's the last phrase that happens. That's the last clause that gets stated. And that really leads us into God's providential work, which begins in verse 44, because you see, when he says, everyone who believes in him, boom, they accepted the message about Christ. They are born again on the spot. As soon as he mentions that is the key response to believe and to trust in him, they believe that. See, this response of salvation happens in the heart. Immediately, when we place our trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, when we believe in that and we entrust ourselves to that, we are born on the spot. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And the same thing can happen to you. The same thing can happen to you today if you've never trusted in him. You see, we don't need... We don't need an altar call. We don't need people to raise their hands. We don't need to have people walk an aisle. Not that I'm against any of those things. But the key thing is when we understand who Jesus is and we understand what Jesus has done and that we can have forgiveness of sins and it comes to everyone who believes in him and trusts in him and rests in him, at the moment we make that choice to trust in him, we're born again right then and there. And that's exactly what happens. Now notice verse 45. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter. You might remember, if you go back to chapter 10 and verse 23, that when Peter got ready to go to Cornelius' house, he said he brought some of the circumcised believers with him. You know, we learn from chapter 11 and verse 12 how many of them there were tells us there there were six of them. Now think about this. He knew something big was going to happen. In a Jewish thinking, if you were going to confirm any event, you would do it with two or three witnesses. And so Peter goes, you know, something big's about ready to happen. I'm going to take six people with me. You could even say triple or double the number of required witnesses. But those who had come with him the circumcised believers who'd come with him, verse 45, it says, were amazed. You know, sometimes language just doesn't really communicate, you know, how picturesque things are. This is a picturesque idiom. Literally, it means they stood beside themselves. You know, we use a similar phrase. They were beside themselves. That's what this is saying. They were literally beside themselves. I mean, this was amazing. This was revolutionary to them. I mean, totally revolutionary. Here's what was so revolutionary. Gentiles were saved without becoming Jews. Now, we may not feel that, but that had never happened before. Gentiles were saved without becoming Jews. 
And not only were they amazed standing beside themselves, verse 46, they were hearing these Gentile believers, these new believers, speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now, if you've been around the Christian world long enough, you know that we have some inside the circle of Christianity today who would say, hey, when somebody gets converted, they should speak in tongues. Why do they say that? Well, don't you see it right here in Acts chapter 10? And here's one thing I have to say about that. It's really interesting that not every conversion, even in the book of Acts, do we have new believers speaking in tongues. In fact, it's fairly unique in the book of Acts. Up to this point, it's only clearly happened one other time. Do you remember when that was? Those of you who've been with us in the study for a while? Remember when it happened before? Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Jews came into the church. In Acts chapter 8, we have the Samaritans who come into the church. It's silent about whether or not they were speaking in tongues that we don't really know. And now we come to Acts chapter 10. This has been like 10 years. So all we're saying is that, that let's not assume that every conversion there ought to be people speaking in tongues. It's a fairly unique thing, even in the book of Acts. Why does it happen here? Well, it's God's signature that a new group is entering into the church. And by the way, the second reason why this is very important is without this kind of a clear sign, the Jews and the church at Jerusalem would have been reluctant to embrace the Gentiles. In fact, we're going to see that's really happening later on in chapter 11. What you have here is the Gentile Pentecost, if you would. And this evidence of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and speaking with tongues is undeniable. It shows undeniably that they were genuinely converted. It is irrefutable. It shows that they're full members of the church. You can't really argue with it at all. And because of that, Peter says in verses 47 and 48, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we did back in chapter 2 at Pentecost. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. I mean, think about this. Do you realize what this is? As non-Jews, these are our spiritual ancestors right here. These are the first Gentile converts. This is the first Gentile baptism. And if you would, because Peter stayed on for a number of days, I think we could say this is the first Gentile follow-up class there ever was. And no doubt, because it probably included a Sunday, it was the first Gentile worship service that had ever been held. You see, sometimes because we're so far down the river from this, we lose the significance of the event. Paul reminds us of the significance of it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, where he writes this. He's writing it to people like us. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, that's speaking of us, who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. You know, historically, adding the Samaritans to the church, you know, the half-breeds to the church, now that was definitely a speed bump 
for the church. But this, this was a radical mountain of change. This was a hard left turn that banged their heads into the windows of their spiritual life. Now, the fourth thing we want to look at is the ramifications in Jerusalem and beyond in the first 26 verses of chapter 11. We're going to kind of skim our way through here, but look at those first three verses. Now, it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter, later on, came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You know, those who were circumcised is a reference to the Jewish believers who were in the church. And Peter follows what the Lord was doing, and he comes back to Jerusalem, and it says, they took issue with him. How many people have ever seen I Love Lucy? Let me see your hands out there. Yeah. It's a great classic, and you see it being replayed today. You know, where you had Lucy, and then you had her Cuban husband, Ricky Ricardo. And if you followed that program, you know that Lucy kept getting in trouble, right? And when Lucy would get in trouble, Ricky would say to her, Lucy, you've got some splaining to do. That's exactly what's happening here. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem are saying to Peter, Peter, you've got some splaining to do. They were taking issue with him. You know what the implication was and what they were saying? Wait a second, wait a second, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, Peter, you don't get this. You see, the Gentiles are to become like us first. The Gentiles are to become circumcised first. The Gentiles are to observe our food laws and traditions that go back for centuries first. First. They do that first before they get into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he's basically, they're basically saying to him, it's always been like this always been like this. Peter, you've gone off the deep end. Now, I want to make a a couple of observations about what goes on here. First of all, let your eyes drift back to verse 1. It's interesting. It says, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. They'd heard something had happened. Peter shows up, and what do they do? They climb on his back. They start criticizing him. Do you know that's a very common pattern with those who have a critical spirit? Those who have a critical spirit criticize quickly and then gather information later. That's just the way they tend to be. I've fallen into that trap in my own life, criticized quickly and gathered information later. It's gotten me in some hot water, even with my own children. What what we should do when we hear about something, what greater wisdom would be is that we get information first. They're not getting the information first. 
we heard about something. Why don't you tell us exactly what happened? They're climbing his tree. They're criticizing him without having the information. So that's the first thing I noticed. Second thing I noticed has to do with Peter's explanation in verses 4 to 17, which, which begins there in verse 4. What impresses me is what does not happen in terms of what comes out of Peter's mouth. I mean, they're saying, hey, you got some explaining to do, Peter. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't say, wait a second here now. How dare you criticize me? I mean, I am an apostle. You know, I have the keys Jesus gave him to me. I mean, he doesn't say, I don't care if you're a little queasy over this thing and you bumped your head with the radical change that happened. He doesn't say to them, hey, look, you just need to suck it up and shut up. You just need to follow my leadership. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, look at verse 4. He began speaking, and he proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence. He took the time in step-by-step fashion to communicate to them what happened, why it happened, how it happened, all the change laid out for them. And by the way, I believe that's part of the responsibility of leadership. It's part of the responsibility of leadership in the home. It's part of the responsibility of leadership in a business. It's part of the responsibility of leadership in an organization. It's part of the responsibility of leadership in the church. There's been change. It makes a large part of people feel uneasy and queasy, and so there needs to be an explanation given, carefully, thoroughly delineating the process of change. This is what's happening with the change. This is why it's happening with the change. This is how it's happening with the change. See, that's very important leadership principles that we see laid out for us. A couple of other things I just want to observe as we work our way through here very quickly. Down in verse 12, the Spirit... Peter says, told me to go to them, Cornelius and his crowd, without misgivings. Now, that tells me something about God understanding us as people. You know, God was aware that Peter, too, was likely going to suffer some spiritual motion sickness from what was about to happen. And he basically says, I want you to do it, but without misgivings, just go ahead, trust me in this situation. And one thing you can say about change, men and women, change calls for flexibility. Change calls for flexibility. Now in verse 16, he says, as I was working my way through this, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Change calls for flexibility, and change requires discernment. You know, not all change is automatically good change. And Change needs to always be measured by and filtered by the word of God. And that's what Peter said I was doing. And ultimately, he says in in verse 17, who was I to question what God was doing? By implication, he's saying to all of the ones he's speaking with, who of us has any reason for standing in God's way? I mean, it's God's plan, God's change, even when it's a radical left turn that causes us to hit our head on our spiritual windows. 
Well, notice what happens in verse 18. As they're processed their way through all of this change step by step, when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the goyim, the Gentiles, also the repentance that leads to life. Even the goyim are in. (laughs) And the goyim is you, and the goyim is me. You know, my friend Dan Bouchel says that there are three common groups in the local church. This is kind of interesting observation on his part. There are three common groups in the local church. The first group he identifies are those who are members of the church based on what it used to be. These are people who are currently members of the church based on what it used to be. They remember the past when they first became connected to the local church. And they dream of maybe we could go back in time to what it was like back then. This is especially true, I think, when a church started out small and then it got bigger. Oh, I just remember what it used to be. And wouldn't it be great to be small again? People who are members of a church based on what it used to be um, generally feel a little uncomfortable about the future. They're not sure what might happen, what's going to change more. And even though they have a vision for reaching others, they have a very limited vision on reaching others, mostly because they're looking backwards. He observes that there's a, a second group in a local church. These who are members based on what a church is presently. You know, they've recently become a part of it. They're very satisfied with the current state of the church. And then when someone starts talking about change, change, that just sounds unsettling to them. And while they have a vision for reaching others, that's still a limited vision for reaching others. So you have those two groups. The third group that he says exists in in a local church are those who become members based on what they hope the church will be in the future. These are people who are in the church who are often impatient. They're frustrated by the pace of change in the church. And he goes on to say this. It's kind of interesting. He says people who who fit into this group oftentimes will suffer from a little bit of an adolescent attitude. You know, like, we know what's best for the church. I I, I just wish the, the, the rest of the people would wake up. So you have these three, three groups of people in a local church, and, and I think there's some perspective here for all three groups. For those who are, who are members based on what they hope the church might be in the future, I think it's important that we need to be careful not to assume that the, church, the change that we foresee, that we are promoting, is automatically God's plan for that church. It may be just our own plan and not necessarily his plan. And we need to remember that for the majority of the body, they need some time to reflect and process. And so if we, if we want to encourage them about change, we need to be careful to delineate the what of the change, the why of the change, and the, and the how of the change. To those who are members of the church based on, on what it is presently, it's important, I think, we keep this perspective that we don't want to get complacent. We don't want to get in a rut. I mean, after all, God is a God of change. He has plans for Wildwood. And those plans, I can tell you right now because I've been here for a long time, those plans include change. 
And then for who are, who, those who are members of the church based on what it used to be, I would just say this, just remember, we can't ever make progress in anything by looking backward. And we need to trust that God is leading the church if the leaders are walking with him and they are true to the word. And so what I would simply say when it comes to change, for those who are in this group, you know, just to lean in and listen carefully when explanations are given. But all of us, I mean, whatever group you may fall in, all of us need to remember that the church does not exist to serve me. The church exists to serve God's mission in the world. Now, in verses 19 to 26, we begin to see God's working in Antioch. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. I just want to simply survey through it quickly. In verse 19, remember, people had been scattered because of the persecution, and some made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, initially speaking the word only to Jews, speaking the gospel only to Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Greeks, the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, there's something fascinating to me in these verses, and that is this little principle. God does not work exclusively through leaders. Isn't that an interesting thought? You know, you don't see the apostles being mentioned here. It's everyday folks. And so it's important in the church that we let the Holy Spirit lead people. Not everything has to funnel through the narrow neck of the leaders, but the leaders are still responsible before the Lord. So you have verse 22 happening. The news about all this reaches the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they send Barnabas off to Antioch, and when he arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, seeing what was happening here with the Gentiles coming into the church, he encouraged them with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord because he, Barnabas, was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. How are we supposed to go about selecting someone to a task in the church? If we need to select someone to a task, how do we do that? How do we do that in a biblical fashion? And really, do we just say, well, I don't know, or maybe that person? I think there's some good principles here because when you see what they did when they sent Barnabas, I see three things. I see, number one, that Barnabas had the right background for the task. In Acts chapter 4, he is from Cyprus. Here, some of these people who are sharing the gospel are from Cyprus. You know, he has the right background to accomplish the task that they lay before him. Second thing he has is the right gifting, not only the right background, but the right gifting. Remember, he's Barnabas. What's Barnabas' real name, his given name at birth? Joseph. Remember, Barnabas is his nickname because he was such an encourager. I like what William Barclay has written. He says this, it is easy to laugh at men's ideals. It is easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. And men and women, we need more encouragers. 
And that's what Barnabas was. He had the right background, he had the right gifting, and he had the right spiritual qualifications. They are laid out for us there in verse 24. You know, just because someone's doing a task doesn't mean that spiritual qualifications shouldn't come into play. Be the person God called you to be, and he will use you. So much here, but in verse 23, he says to these new believers, remain true to the Lord. No doubt saying to them, obey God's word. Walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Serve God consistently. And when we do those things, we remain true to him. And then in verse 26, at the very end, a very interesting little statement is made. It says, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, the way we're going to see more of Antioch in the months ahead as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. But they were first called Christians at Antioch. It's the word Christ with the little ending on it, I-A-N, meaning belonging to Christ. And this is not what the Christians called themselves. This is what the community of Antioch chose to call them, Christians, for the very first time. Why would they call them Christians belonging to Christ? Well, it's what was coming out of their mouths. They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about Christ. He was a regular part of their conversation in the community, and thus they chose to call them Christians for the very first time. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. So much here. So much here. Couldn't even begin to cover everything that's here. But I want to end our time together with two closing observations that I think are very important. All right? You're ready to kind of pull it all together. First closing observation is this. The term Christian today is hazy and vague. It, it wasn't then, but it is today. For many today in our culture, it's almost like an auto-label. Well, I'm not a pagan. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I'm not Muslim. I, I, I'm, I'm Christian. I'm not Jewish. I'm Christian. You know, for many in our culture today, uh, we say, well, I, I, I'm Christian. What we mean by that is, well, I'm religious. I'm a religious person. I'm not a non-religious person. I'm a Christian. Uh, I, I go to church. I go to church most weeks. Uh, I, I'm a Christian. And maybe I, I give some money to God occasionally. You know, I, I'm a Christian. That term today is hazy and vague. Let me tell you what the original understanding of Christian was in Antioch. Those who were called Christians are individuals who saw that they were lost in their sin. Those who were called Christians knew that they had been rescued by Christ by what he had done on the cross in their place. Those who were called Christians trusted fully in what Jesus did. Those who were called Christians in Antioch are individuals who had chosen by grace through faith to follow Jesus. That's the original sense of the word. So the question for you and for me is, am I a Christian in the biblical sense of the word? 
See, that's what's so vitally critical. And if your answer would be not really, you could be today. All you need to do is see that you're lost in your sin, just like the original Christians. You need to see that you are being rescued by what Christ did on the cross. You see that you want to trust fully in what he did for you, and you are choosing by grace through faith to follow Jesus. And then when you do that, you become the original Christian, as coined in Antioch. Second, closing observation I want to make is this, and this is an understatement, the greatest miracle is salvation. Sometimes we're attracted to all these healings and everything else that went on. The greatest miracle is salvation. You know, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus asked this question. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or if you're paralyzed, take up your mat and walk? And the answer to that was, take up your mat and walk is easier. Saying your sins are forgiven is much different and more difficult because the greatest miracle is salvation. Why is it the greatest? It costs the greatest price, Christ's blood. It has the greatest impact. These healings, even the resurrections, temporary. People died again. The impact of salvation is eternal, and it gives the greatest glory to God. Men and women, do you realize this is an important section of Scripture? The gospel came to us, to you and to me. This is where it all began. David says this in Psalm 32 too. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And that's true. And this is where the blessing began. And it has come to Oklahoma. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for the scriptures and how alive they are. And as we're celebrating a holiday, may we remember to celebrate the greatest miracle of all, which is salvation at the greatest price, the greatest impact, the greatest glory to you. We're so thankful that the gospel came to us. What a, what a joy to celebrate our roots we want to just say words of praise to you, expressing our adoration and joy. I think of the, those who shouted Hosanna when the Savior came into Jerusalem. And we want to do the same today. We want to just say Hosanna. We want to express our adoration and joy at the fact that the gospel has come to us. What a thrill that is. What a thing to celebrate. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.